0: Would you do something about that noise? What noise? What kind of sick game are you people playing, hmm? What are you talking about? Can't you hear it?
1: We complained until very cute engineers came by and said there was nothing wrong.
2: Wait a minute. Is it a kind of high-pitched whine? Yes!
0: Thank God! See, I told you we weren't crazy. Mm-hmm. You are a mutant. You are. Now, do something about that noise, or I will snap her neck.
3: Trekno Babble, Psycho Babble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and not-so-catalectic mutant genius.
1: And I'm Elizabeth, your do re do student of humanoid psychology.
3: <laughs> our mission is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I are taking a look at The Human Mutants from a trilogy of DS9 episodes. The Eugenics Wars may be over, but the Federation definitely isn't over it. We begin with Season 5's Dr. Bashir, I presume, written by Jimmy Diggs and Ronald D. Moore, and directed by David Livingston. It aired in 1997. Let's start with the rom-com, and by rom-com, I mean Rom, idiot savant and Ferengi engineer, is struggling to overcome his own, well, today we'd probably call it neurodivergence, to finally ask Lita out on a date.
4: I... Uh, Lita, would you like... maybe... to... one night... soon... to...
0: maybe... Ron, you're a regular poet.
3: Meanwhile. Dr. Lewis Zimmerman, recognizable as the creator of the EMH on Voyager, arrives on the station to engage with Bashir. He's been tasked to extend the product line of his medical holograms by creating a more long-term version based on Bashir's personality and appearance.
5: I'll be conducting in-depth interviews with your friends, colleagues, family members, in order to build a more rounded psychological profile for the LMH, I see.
2: I wonder if you could do me a favor and consider not interviewing my parents. Well, to be blunt, um, we're not close. Uh, we haven't been for many years, and uh, I would consider it a personal favor if you would uh, sort of leave my parents out of it. I see. Well, I certainly understand. Well, thank you. Um, I'll see you tomorrow.
5: Hmm. Note. Contact subject's parents immediately.
3: They arrive after a few days, surprising the hell out of Jules, and not in a good way. The pair are warm and friendly, but Julian clearly resents the hell out of them, especially his father, Richard, who takes credit for a lot of Julian's successes.
6: He's a very uh, gifted young man. Hope you're putting all his talents to good use, Captain. We try. Well, sometimes you have to push him a little. It took quite a while to talk him into taking up medicine, but he did. So you're the reason he went to medical school. That's right. He wanted to become- Perhaps
4: we should save that until another time, Richard. I'm sure the captain is a very busy man.
6: of course. Maybe after our interviews are over. Interviews? Yes, with the Dr. Zimmerman. Didn't he tell you? No, he didn't.
3: More seriously, there's a secret the three of them share, which they all agree, despite the hostility between them, must remain secret. Unfortunately, they accidentally spill the beans in Zimmerman's presence, They believe they're speaking to Julian in private, but it's actually the prototype of his holographic counterpart, and Zimmerman and O'Brien observed the exchange from behind a bulkhead. That admittedly minor breach of ethics apparently pales in comparison to the crime they've admitted to—that Julian was genetically engineered as a six-year-old. He was developmentally disabled to some degree, and his parents stepped in to correct his problems The procedure is illegal in the Federation. Something about genetically engineered supermen nearly taking over the world last century? I think they made a film about it. The rom-com is complicated when Zimmerman asks Lita out himself during his interview process and with Rom held back by his shyness, Zimmerman seems to succeed where he has failed.
5: I spoke to some of my colleagues at the Jupiter station this morning. It seems that the manager of our station cafe has decided to quit. Really? Uh, They're still looking for a new manager. Someone with experience in both food service and entertainment. Someone like you. Me? Yes, I've already taken the liberty of speaking to our station's commanding officer about you and she's amenable to the idea. The cafe is yours if you want it.
1: My own cafe?
5: Lita all but begs Rom to ask
3: her to stay, as she too has feelings for him, but he can't muster the strength until the last act, as she's about to leave the station permanently. Defeated, Julian decides to resign before Zimmerman can report his status to Starfleet. He and his parents have another argument, revealing the pain and shame they all share around their former secret. However, when Julian arrives at Sisko's office in the morning, Richard has already exchanged his freedom for Julian's career. He will spend two years in a penal colony, and Julian will be allowed to remain in Starfleet. And so, Zimmerman returns to Jupiter quite empty-handed, well, almost, and Julian returns to his life unencumbered by his secret, free to exercise the full extent of his enhanced abilities.
1: I forgot that Robert Ricardo makes a cameo in this episode, so I was so delighted two when cameos. he came on screen. <laughs> he makes two cameos, very true, two cameos. And, and he is such a good actor. You know, like I was expecting the EMH and Zimmerman is a grumpy asshat. So it was just like so great to see like him be able to play that different character and also like have that EMH that we so know and love come in. And then the Julian EMH pretend to be the EMH for a minute. Just like all the the little like acting meta layers I thought was really great.
5: Am I being replaced? You're being supplemented by a new long-term program. By him. There. Transfer is complete. Please state the nature of the medical emergency. Oh, that's original. He doesn't even look old enough to be a doctor. If you'd like my advice,
2: you should delete this program. Now that I'm here, why would you need an archaic piece of software like him?
5: Archaic? We can discuss this at another time.
1: And um the interview that Zimmerman was doing with like Julian's like colleagues and like you know Presumably almost his family. like the responses that they were giving what like about Julian was really interesting, um especially like O'Brien.
4: I wouldn't want this to get back to Julian. You have my word. Well, the truth is he's an extraordinary person. a real sense of honor and integrity, great sense of humor, warm, caring. You're sure he's not going to read this
3: someday we'll talk about their relationship O'Brien's and Bashirs and how, it's it's so funny because in some ways it's very um, progressive for the time and that it allows these two heterosexual men to have an intimate relationship with each other that is like real based on like real okay. deep emotions. In some ways they have stronger feelings for each other than they do about their romantic partners, even uh, Keiko, O'Brien's wife. But on the other hand, in order to sort of counterbalance that, they have to keep reminding you that they... Have to project this male archetype, like we don't really care about each other. No, I don't yeah. like you. You suck. Stuff <laughs> on top of it. Uh, it's yeah. it's amusing. That's a lot
1: watch. of cultural baggage.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. Like,
1: I like you, but I don't like you. No. Mm.
3: <laughs> no, I'm not gay. I don't have feelings. Yeah, I know it's a lot of that. I totally agree with you. Uh, the The responses, the other responses that the other um, interviewees give is. I think a lot of what sets us up as, uh, to a modern eye reading as a neurodivergency allegory in the way they
4: describe Mm -hmm. Bashir. Young, eager, ambitious. He was fresh out of medical school, looking forward to his first taste of frontier medicine. Sometimes he let that natural impulse override his sense of decorum. Sometimes he could uh, give you way too much information. Sometimes he just, Didn't know when to shut up, but he was very persistent.
3: It's a lot of like just signals that say, um, you know, your autistic friend basically is what they're they're getting at.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit like a dog whistle of like, we're going to tell you what this is in a really uh, unfortunately stereotypical way. Like I'm not saying like it's an accurate dog whistle, but like it's totally there. it's It's just like, oh, here we're gonna we're gonna imply this so you get it without saying it, you know, And I feel conflicted around it, you know, to be honest, like I think, I don't know, it's um, I'm not autistic, you know, so and I, I want to make sure that people who live with that kind of neurodivergence and identity are the ones that get to be able to define what that is, you know, I think, you know, um, but at the same time, like there is, I think this like caricature of like good autism and bad autism Mm. like that, that I see in this episode and, Hmm. and it's a little hard to, I don't know. I notice my own conflict about noticing it, noticing like the kind of quote-unquote positive qualities of that but also not wanting to buy into that story that kind of I think really limits our perception and understanding of of people who are like that so I don't know if that's making a lot of sense but I I just want to speak to like my own like uncomfortability around it and just say like yeah this is a really complex issue and a complex episode that we're trying to address so
3: I, I, I get what you're saying, and it's one of the things we're going to come back to it once we've gone through all three episodes this week. But um, the, the 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 storytelling approach in these D S I N episodes is not it is not sort of typical for Star Trek in that it presents this challenging issue um, of what we are what we today call neurodivergence and and how it the different ways it might manifest, and we'll get back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't offer a simple solution. Or like a sort of like a moral, uh, Aesop at the end or something like. And this is the thing. It's like no, this is, this is a part of the fabric of life and society. And it's difficult and it's it's complicated, as you say, and requires a lot of ongoing conversation to. Um, uh, I don't want to say deal with it like it's a like it's a burden necessarily, but it is something we just we have to be engaged with. There's a lot of things that I, yeah, uh, again, we'll get back to in terms of the way the Federation is positively depicted um, in, in these episodes. But there is this albatross hanging around the Federation's neck in this respect where they sort of said, well, we went through this issue with the eugenics wars and this was really bad. So we're just going to write a law that says, you can't do this and that will solve the problem. And clearly yeah. it has not solved the problem.
1: Yeah, because people are still getting these modifications. You know, there's still this like, broader spectrum about what it means to be human and and we create and there are these boundaries about what is and isn't okay and isn't acceptable and then the people who are outside those bounds um are in a really shitty situation
3: (laughs) yeah and there's one of my favorite aspects of this episode um is the irony of having bashir be the focus of you know he's because he was genetically engineered he is you know supposed to be barred from being in Starfleet and barred from being a do- being a doctor. And yet mm-hmm. he is of the focus characters in this episode, the least uh strange <laughs> or like least dysfunctional. Yeah. <laughs> right? You've got yes, uh, Ram and Zimmerman and his father, especially, is the one that stuck out to me, Richard Bashir, um, mm-hmm. who is not was not genetically engineered, and yet, if not for the fact that he right, like, lives in a moneyless society, would have a really big handicap in life and that he can't hold on a job, you know, he's constantly unable to focus, like, it's, it's interesting, the coding there, right?
6: My schedule's been so busy up until now. I'm sure you know what it's like. Oh, too well, I'm afraid. What is it you do, Mr. Bashir? Oh, I've done many things. At the moment, I'm involved in landscape architecture, you know, designing public spaces, parks, mostly. I love the idea of working on projects that thousands of people will enjoy long after I'm gone. They're my my legacy, my gift to succeeding generations. <laughs> Aside from Jules here, of course. When I used to run shuttles, I never would have tolerated that kind of behavior towards my passengers. Dad, you're talking to me now. You were a third-class steward for all of six months. That's right. And I was required to have daily contact with the passengers. And you can bet that if I even looked at them the wrong way, I would' have been discharged on the spot, I thought you were no, I resigned,
1: so like I notice that kind of like inflation of grandeur and importance, and to me that also implies an aversion to shame of like, oh no, i can't I can't be these things. I have to kind of puff myself up and look and make myself look good and um that that to me is starting to fringe on um. On a little that's like those are slightly narcissistic traits i wouldn't go and say that he has flow full-blown like narcissistic personality disorder but that aversion to shame and like that kind of like inflated self of sense of self-importance or grandeur or presenting yourself as someone who is very like look at how amazing i am because i cannot stand to think of myself as anything else but amazing that's starting to get into the, these narcissistic tendencies, um, yeah. And to me, that you know, that's slightly less of like neurodivergency as it is like okay, there's like a problem here. You know, like there's like a structural personality thing going on that's really hindering like Richard's social interactions. Um, so that's what I was picking up on more so than like a lack of focus. Um, but what what did you see?
3: Well, I'll I'll come back to the lack of focus thing, but. To your point, one of the things that's helpful about the way Star Trek is able to frame something like this in Richard is that um, in a, in our contemporary society, in, you know, contemporary capitalism, um, the need to, like, pad your resume or, like, inflate yeah. your accomplishments for the sake of ha- having and holding a job so that you can feed yourself and stuff, like, is given a whole different context where identifying where the... Um, material need ends and the personality disorder or dysfunction begins is much more difficult than in a society that says no you don't have to do anything Mm -hmm. but you should and you can't (laughs) um isn't you know why is that happening is is interesting to me but um the it's this idea that richard is you know he's not dumb (laughs) like he's he's an intelligent person he's probably capable in a lot of ways and he's certainly driven um you know at the very least ethical or not his the the way he and his wife decided to handle what was happening with their son shows that he's like he has um a motivation to 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 act at least in in interests Mm -hmm. that are important to him it's that uh by sort of dabbling in all these different things and not really committing to them and not really focusing on them. There's no like accountability to success or failure. It's like, it's not that you gave it your all and didn't make it. It's that, well, you you quit before you had a chance to actually be tested because of that fear. Mm -hmm. And I think that's connected to what you were saying. It's that fear of shame, fear of failure, fear of accountability. But it certainly is coded, you know, a lack of being able to focus is something it's, it's almost the prototypical, um, like autistic dog whistle, right? That idea that like, oh, you can't focus in class, you have ADHD or whatever, right?
1: Yeah, uh, autism and ADHD are separate things. They're often comorbid, which is not to say that like it's a mortality issue or like it's going to kill you. It just means that they often present together, mm-hmm. but they're not, it, it's not exactly the same thing. Um, but, you yeah, know, the lack of focus to me is definitely an ADHD thing that, you know, is one of the more common, like, neurodivergent traits that we're seeing today.
3: I think I'm going to make that mistake more than once <laughs> in this podcast where I'm going to mislabel something. So I appreciate you holding me accountable, but to anyone listening or watching who um, knows more about this than I do, and I, and I mess up the terminology, I, I apologize in advance.
1: Likewise, I'm not an expert in, in these subjects, and you know we would love to hear from you if you think we, you know, like, if, if something that we could understand better, please let us know.
3: Always. Um, now, on the other hand, you have someone like Zimmerman, and we've seen him at this point once on Voyager. Um, And then he's gonna get more development later, which we'll probably do an episode about him at some point. I'm a holographic recreation
5: of Dr. Lewis Zimmerman, the creator of the emergency medical hologram.
2: You're the
0: diagnostic matrix.
5: You might say that. Something wrong with your EMH? Yes. I certainly hope you're going to be able to do something about this annoying problem. What's wrong with it?
0: He's experiencing a cascade failure. His memory circuits are degrading. I was trying to bring the subroutines online. If
5: you don't mind, I can do it faster.
0: I can see where you get your charming personality.
5: Not to mention my hairline. He he has sort of the opposite problem, where he is recognized for his success. Uh, This must be quite an honor. Yes, it is quite a feather in my cap, sir. It is nothing less than a shot at immortality. The original EMH program will probably still be in use for decades to come. The LMH will undoubtedly last far longer than that. That is, if I can work out certain technical problems. Now. I'll need to remain here for at least three weeks. I'll need quarters, access to your main computer, a technician to install my equipment, a high-speed data link with my lab. Doctor, my first officer, Major Kira, will see to all your needs.
2: Lewis, I just met you. I I mean, I like you.
5: You see, you're warming up to me already. Given time, you might begin to feel more. Just as I do. Besides, you said you liked cerebral men. And at the risk of sounding immodest, I have a towering intellect.
3: It's kind of interesting, right? Because he's allowed to not only be super intelligent and um, make breakthroughs in hollow technology and whatnot based on his intelligence, but also he's a weirdo, right? He's socially pretty dysfunctional. But he's allowed to be and just sort of seen as... Uh, you know, divergent, I guess, from the norm without it being stigmatized in the same way it is for Bashir because he had this procedure.
2: You brought my parents to this station against my explicit wishes that you keep them out of this project.
5: I'm sorry it upsets you, but their input is- You had no right to bring them here. I did not bring them here. I simply issued an invitation. You said it was urgent. It is urgent, to me. Like it or not, they're an important part of your background and I need to interview them. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a delivery to make.
1: Yeah, that is a really important parallel to notice. Like when when are these traits acceptable and when are they not? L- like you said earlier, Bashir is the most functional of all these characters who are not quite fitting into like the neurotypical society for one reason or another, is it, whether it's because of their abilities or because of their ability to like navigate social, social dynamics in a way that doesn't make other people go, "What?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And Zimmerman definitely has that. He's a little, he's a little off putting This might happen in another episode, but I was kind of waiting for the scene where he admitted how upset he is that he's not the LMH model.
5: The EMH Mark One was reconfigured to scrub plasma conduits on waste transfer barges. I've been treated by the Mark III, the Mark IV, not to mention the finest real
3: doctors in Starfleet. That's in a Voyager episode. It's not the LMH, but it is the Voyager episode. And yeah, we'll, again, we'll talk about it when we do our Zimmerman focus at some point, because he's a cool character. But he, um, the, the later models of the EMH, you know, the first one's the same. It's Robert Picardo. It's in his face and his image and his personality. Yeah. <laughs> but people complained so much on other starships about how grating he is. And we've seen this on Voyager, of yeah. course, the doctor starts out as really annoying and horrible bedside manner, that's part of the premise. Um, and But he gets to develop over time. It's, it's really, really cool. But uh, because of that complaint, then following the subsequent models of EMH.
5: Emergency medical hotheads. Extremely marginal house calls. That's what everyone used to call the Mark Ones until they were bounced out of the medical core. Starfleet, in its infinite wisdom, overruled me and reassigned them all to work waste transfer barges. Do you know how humiliating it is to have 675 Mark 1s out there scrubbing plasma conduits? All with my face.
3: The final episode that Carter touches on this is actually from the final season of Voyager near the very very end where you
5: have the EMH's Mark Mark 1s. Hundreds of EMH Mark 1s, identical to me in every respect except they've been condemned to a menial existence, scrubbing conduits, mining dilithium.
1: Well I guess I just want to like name that as like I think that's like a motivating undercurrent in the way he's like interacting with Bashir in this in this episode yeah. and just the way he is in general he's like i'm amazing and i also have to live with the shame of like not being chosen to represent my own genius yeah. you know and like i think that i think that conflict really kind of bleeds out into the way that he's interacting with people
4: i i i don't know
5: if i had a reason to stay i'd stay
2: Do
6: I have
3: a reason to stay? I, I don't know. Ram is also one of these like kind of savant type coded people where he's a genius at engineering, but he's really bad at being a Ferengi A in terms of the, the social expectations. But he's also just generally kind of an awkward guy, um, which, which is fine. Obviously, like Lita is attracted to him in spite of, or maybe because of all of that. Um, and yet it, it's kind of weird the way the episode sets it up because on the one hand she's like, okay, clearly th- his awkwardness is not a problem for her in the same yeah. way it's not, that's not a problem for her. Like she dated Bashir and she briefly here was with Zimmerman, like she likes quirky guys. That's great. You know, it's, yeah. it's a, a little bit of a writer's fantasy. Um, we're not gonna get into all of that.
5: <laughs> I must be doing something wrong.
0: I don't know, Lita. Maybe he's just not interested in you.
4: Well, I know he likes me.
0: Likes you, yes. But he's an engineer, a problem solver. He needs a woman with a body and brains.
2: I have brains.
0: Sure you do, honey. That's why I hired you. Now, heat up and then take those brains back to the double wheel where the customers can get a good long look at them.
3: Yes, the the big busty uh, ladies, alien ladies, love the nerdy guys more than anyone. Uh, um, Maybe. But but, uh, the point being, if she doesn't care about that, why is it so important to her that Rom initiate the relationship? Like, why can't she be the one to say to him, hey, I I like you, can we we go on a date or whatever? You know what I mean?
1: That is strange. Plot point, writer's thing, who knows? Lita, I think is signaled as neurotypical, you know, in this way. And Rom, you know, we're kind of saying is like, okay, there's like some savant syndrome, neurodivergency, like social social difficulties here that are making it harder for him to like both be in Ferengi society and this like human society, you know, or Bajoran society. Oh my God, there's so many societies going on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But they both have this like aversion to being rejected, (laughs) you know, and like that feels Uh very normal to me you know that's a very normal thing of like oh like once you know it's like schrodinger's cat like once i open this box i'm going to know exactly what it is and what if it's not what i want you know and like that that kind of like hesitancy to give up on the possibility of something happening i think is a very very normal thing that regardless of where you fall on this like neurotypical or neurodivergent spectrum like that's something we all share You know, and and I just see it played out into, from very two different vantage points with Lita and Rom. But they're both just dealing with the like, I don't want to be rejected and I'm scared, kind of like underpins, underpinnings of all that.
5: It's not very big, less than half the size of Quarks.
0: Really.
3: Later that same year, Piam Pietroforte and Rene Echeverria brought us Statistical Probabilities as part of the sixth season. It was directed by Anson Williams. A psychiatrist called Dr. Lowes has brought four patients to DS9 to meet Dr. Bashir. The quartet, Patrick, Jack, Lauren, and Serena, were genetically enhanced as well, but their procedures left them with antisocial personality characteristics which require them to be institutionalized. These cases are so rare. There's no standard treatment.
4: I can't imagine it was a very stimulating environment for them.
2: That's what Dr. Lowe saw when she first came to the Institute. She got permission to separate them from the other residents so that she could work with them. Why did she bring them here? She thought they might respond to meeting someone like them who was leading a normal life.
3: Julian finds himself straddling two worlds. On the one hand, he can fully express his mutant abilities around the quartet, while his friends, as seen in a later scene where they discuss the patients over dinner, are at varying degrees uncomfortable
4: with the divergences. Well, let's hope they don't become too productive. Might make the rest of us look bad. It is not a laughing matter. If people like them are allowed to compete freely, then parents would feel pressured to have their children enhanced so they could keep up. That's precisely what prompted the ban on DNA resequencing
2: in the first place. Giving them a chance to contribute doesn't necessarily mean sanctioning what was done to them. They didn't ask to have their DNA tampered with. They were only
4: children. And why should they be excluded just because their parents broke the law? It's not quite fair, but even so, It seemed like a good way to discourage genetic tampering. It's not as if we're trying to exclude them from anything. We're just talking about limiting what they're allowed to do. Like joining Starfleet.
2: Exactly. Are you saying that I shouldn't be allowed to wear this
4: uniform? No, you are an exception.
3: With his friends, Bashir is free to pass as normal, however, while the Quartet highlight the differences he spent his life hiding from society. There's a closely linked side plot regarding mounting tensions in the Dominion War. Following the occupation of DS9 and Dukat's incarceration, Damar has been promoted in his place. He delivers what to the naked eye appears to be a pretty boilerplate speech over the comm, but the quartet observing the speech are able to discern an incredible amount of detail about his backstory and motivation just by cataloging his body
4: language. As your leader... Pretender? You don't belong
0: on that throne and you know it.
4: in my power to protect Cardassia. Someone's making him say all this. He doesn't Forward want to. ...into a new era. This I vow with my life's blood. For my sons. For all our sons.
0: Did any of you know who Damar was before today? No, no, no. But it's obvious who he is. Uh, the Pretender. <laughs> who who killed the king and seized the throne. Not the king. He's still alive. Or well, the queen, maybe. <gasps> Or a princess? Mm-hmm. Yes. See how? Skaldica's daughter. And now, the pretender finds himself in league with a a, a dark knight that he can't control.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Weyoun. It's
0: not a bad story. Epic, really.
3: Bashir seizes on the opportunity to keep them engaged by exposing them to all the information regarding the war, including the chance to closely examine an holographic recording of a meeting held later that week on the station. Alleged peace talks between Damar, Wayun, and Sisko. The Quartet churn out a plethora of projections and recommendations which Bashir is able to convince Cisco to pass along to Starfleet Command. So, Bashir is succeeding in his task, but becoming a bit swept up in the fun. Eventually, the Quartet recommends that the Federation surrender to the Dominion based on their projection that the Federation cannot possibly win.
4: Even if I knew with 100% certainty what was going to happen, I wouldn't ask an entire generation of people to voluntarily give up their freedom!
2: Not even to save over 900 billion
4: lives! Surrender is not an option! Now I'm happy to hear your group's advice on how to win this war, but I don't need your advice on how to lose it. We can't win this war. I don't care if the odds are against us. If we're going to lose, then we're going to go down fighting, so that when our descendants someday rise up against the Dominion, they'll
3: know what they're made of. Before long, Bashir is himself slipping into antisocial behavior, convinced that 900 billion lives lie in the balance. Given the rejection of their thinking, the Quartet decides to commit treason and feed information to the Dominion to bring the war to an end more quickly. Bashir manages to get through to Serena, who's left to guard him, and stop
0: the others. Maybe our projections were wrong. How can you say that? We factored in every contingency, hmm? every variable. The equations don't lie. You. You. You ruined everything. What do you make of that, Jack? Why didn't you anticipate that? Why didn't you
2: factor her into your equation? Because you thought you knew everything. But you didn't even know what was going to happen in this world. One person changed the course of history. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me think that maybe, just maybe, things may not turn out the way we thought.
3: So as I touched on with Dr. Bashir, I presume, you know, I... I like the way in which DS9 in these episodes is portraying the Federation as a, as a government for the most part. Um, and as a, and as a society, you know, we talked about how Richard Bashir, his psychological problems are real um, and a social hindrance to a certain extent, but they're not an economic hindrance and that it doesn't matter that he's having an issue holding a job. He can be alive and have a have a normal life, relatively speaking, at least in terms of material needs.
1: Yeah. You don't need to be a quote unquote productive member of society to have your basic needs met. What a concept.
3: Right. And similarly in a couple ways, one in that they, the, the, um, the quartet here, the, the mutants as they call themselves, um, are given priority, even in the context here in season six, where we are, um, where the, the war is really heating up and normally quote unquote in Uh, historical situations when there's a war happening Uh, things like um, relatively niche uh, medical social psychological experiments like that are going on here are pushed way to the back (laughs) of priority but even still even on DS9 the Federation says no this is also still important Um, even though we have this existential crisis happening and I and on top of that they take these people seriously um when they give their recommendations uh, even if they don't agree with all of them and i just i find that sort of background note of these episodes really really comforting and and wonderful and a sort of soft tricky message that i i, I like to see especially in this show
1: yeah you know thanks for pointing that out i hadn't quite like that hadn't registered to me like as loudly as you just said it. And I really appreciate you bringing that to the forefront of like, yeah, like look at what we're, we're, look at what we're prioritizing, even in times of war, like, look, we're still living by these very, like, I'm going to use the word humanistic, but you know what I mean in the context of Star Trek, when yeah. I say that, we're going to keep living by these like very humanistic values that people matter, no matter what is going on. And, um, yeah, I, that's really beautiful to me, and, and I like the optimistic message that, that that carries. You know, I know we're kind of looking at these episodes through a lens of, like, neurodivergence, but with with this episode and the third episode that we're looking at today, I actually saw an adi- additional layer of, like, mental illness, like very severe mental illness um, hmm. in these characters that I, I just want to make sure that I speak to, like, the separation of that. Like, there's some neurodivergency happening. There's some social commentary happening. And there are these, what I'm reading as, like, some personality disorders and, like, very severe trauma responses that are, that I see very distinctly, but are kind of being conflated in the show. Um, And I just wanted to, like, speak to that. And I'm sure we'll, you know, we'll unpack that as we continue this episode. But... One thing that I really, really liked about it was like, hey, look at these people who have some pretty severe mental illnesses going on who have been institutionalized, which is a historic problem I have with this episode. Like, as much as some of this is optimistic, hmm. like institutionalizing people like this is a very historic and problematic way that we have dealt with mental illness in the past. And so I don't love the idea that that still exists in the future. And I think that's a lack of imagination. That's a completely other tangent. I will come back to my point. (laughs) This is my neurodivergency coming out. Look (laughs) at all the different threads that I'm attempting to like weave right now. Um, But I love how that these people who've been institutionalized who have these quote unquote problems like normally, we see the dysfunction of that. We see like the negative side, the 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 burden of living with these kind of like mental illnesses and conditions. But we never see the the brilliance of it, you know, mm. And so I love the fact that like this episode shows that, hey, these people who can be so easy have been so easily discounted in the past, look at this amazing thing that they can do and that they actually can like po- like positively contribute to society. Because of and despite of these things, and and to me that was like a really really powerful message, just to to show this kind of experience in a much more optimistic and positive light.
3: Um, it's something, a t- a topic I want to return to, um, because I, I I I think the portrayal is complicated in this case um yeah and it's not it's not as black and white as it often is on Trek, and there's there's a couple things that I think they really get right and a few things as you're pointing out that they didn't necessarily get right um but can we maybe do like a a quick rundown on the on the quartet here on Jack Patrick Lauren and Serena and just sort of get like a surface level take on what kind of either mental illness or sort of neurodivergent tendencies they uh display to you
1: Sure. Well, I, I think all of them display like this savant syndrome, which is often associated with autism, uh, with autism spectrum disorder, where they're like s- much more intelligent than an average neurotypical person. Like they have these abilities to see things that not every, everybody else sees, and they're able to put things together really quickly and in really unique ways that is beyond the typical ability of a neuro- of, again average neurotypical person. So I see all four of them having that. And I think that's kind of where like the, you know, genetic engineering modification, like that's what it's pointing to, is kind of these perceived positive benefits of um, uh, of being autistic. But that's not the only thing going on. So um, Jack and Lauren, I think have personality disorders. Um, and, and I also wanna say that like both personality, like most of this stems from trauma. Like something happens to you that makes you that that makes your personality start to configure in a very specific way and it, it's 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 this idea of like there's always something that happens that that leads to this result it's not just something random or something genetic or mm. something like most of it comes from trauma you know and, and i just i like so i just want to be really really just, clear I just about that this clarification yeah, out there. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just,
3: just to be really clear so what w- one of the things maybe you're objecting to about the portrayal here is that what you're seeing in these characters is in our manifestations of real behaviors we see in people which in the real world are the result of psychological trauma which maybe can be um, coped with or, or treated um, with therapy or, or or other other means whereas in the episode the implication is because they were genetically engineered to be this way or accidentally turned out this way because of it being the less I guess prestigious or, or lucky maybe um, procedure that Bashir got yeah. um, it is implied that these things come from genetic dysfunction like genetic yeah. mutation right that's the the implication here which that conflation doesn't sit necessarily well with you is, is that fair
1: yes that's okay. a really really good way to summarize it and 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 reflect that thank you Um, that was much better than where I was going so thank you
2: All I kept thinking was, there, but for the grace of God, go I. How do you mean? My parents managed to find a decent doctor to perform the DNA resequencing on me. These four weren't so lucky. They all suffered unintended side effects. And by the time they were five or six, their parents were forced to come forward and admit they'd broken the law so that their children could get treatment.
1: You know, in a way, like, the difference between the quartet and what happened with Bashir is also emblematic of how trauma works. Trauma isn't necessarily what happens to you, it's how you respond to it. It's how your system is able to cope with it. Both your internal like nervous system and your community. Like, do you have the things you need to get through an, like a really traumatic experience? And if you don't some of these things start to manifest in dysfunctional ways but if you do you can get through it to the other side relatively intact and so it's not so much what happens to you as in how you how your system responds to it and is able to recover from it so i think that is also like a a interesting parallel again between like the sheer and what happened to these quartets, like the the show puts it in terms of like medical complications, but it it also tracks in this like very real world trauma response kind of way. So to actually answer what you asked for as a very (laughs) quick question, like how many minutes later? um, So I see Jack and Lauren as having um, personality disorders um, in addition to the neurodivergency that's going on. So Jack, to me, reads as paranoid and slightly um, sociopathic.
0: Am I the only one here? Is that it? Mm -hmm -hmm. Is that it? Am I the only one who sees? Mm -hmm -hmm. And what is that incessant noise?
1: The psychopathic tendencies, to me, stems from an emotional immaturity and the fact that he doesn't have better tools to express his frustration and his lack of autonomy and control, you know, like to me like that, like, you know, the, the way the psychiatrist in the first episode, like in the beginning of the episode, like was kind of interacting with them, like read very much to me is the way you would interact with like people in a mental institution.
2: You're not sorry. We both know that you did it on purpose because you're upset, but there are better ways of dealing with being upset.
1: If you're in a situation like that, you really have so little control. And you are just trying to do the best you can and with really bad tools and so so jack to me is more paranoid he's really paranoid jumps to conclusions suspicious of everybody you know like that's kind of his organizing principle in the way that he moves forward in the world and has these violent tendencies and outbursts just because he doesn't know how to get what he wants? Otherwise, you know, it it comes from a very like kind of immature place.
0: Uh-huh. Would anyone mind if I turned on the lights? Would anyone mind if he turns on some lights? <laughs> Go ahead. We're not mole people, you know. Computer lights. Hello. Lauren.
4: I know
1: what you're thinking, Julian, but I'm not that kind of girl. Lauren, to me, reads as very histrionic, which is a way of saying, um, histrionic people tend to be very sexualized as a way to lure people who have power toward them, who can protect them, because they kind of feel like they're the bunny surrounded by wolves. And hmm. how is the bunny gonna survive if they're, if they're surrounded by wolves? You seduce the wolf, essentially. You try to get the wolf to be on your side because that's your best chance of survival.
0: He turned out all right. You're not exactly known for being very discriminating, hmm? I
1: turned you down, didn't I?
0: And you're still regretting it! Cube root of 329, what is it? 6.903.
2: Very good. And you didn't even use your fingers. He's a mutant just like the rest
1: of us. While it kind of presents a little differently between, like, typical men and women with gender norms, which is a whole other can of worms that I'm going to acknowledge and pass over right now, Yeah. Um but women tend to use sexuality and use their, their sexuality as a way to kind of get these people toward, to to protect them. Um, And they both want that closeness and resent it because they want the power that they see the other person having. So that that's like, general like so that that, do you see why i read those two that way like based on my descriptions there
3: yeah absolutely and i'm really glad like i think jack's tendencies are more obvious to the lay person um in terms of like yes you're threatening to kill serena whether he meant it or not like okay this is obviously not acceptable social behavior lauren just reads this kind of you know, sexually free, which I wouldn't categorize as being a, a, a mental disorder personally. Um, but I, but the way you characterize it makes a lot more sense in terms of how this, how her personality in particular maps into this neurodivergent uh, spectrum. So that's actually very helpful.
1: Yeah. Again, that's a personality disorder versus a, neurotypic, a neurodivergent thing. So separating these things that have been conflated. And I also want to say, like, these are not, fully flushed out portrayals of these types of illnesses. Like they're a little two dimensional, Mm -hmm. but there's enough there that I recognize that I'm like, okay, this is kind of like the the flavor you're cooking with, even though you didn't quite get the like three dimensional depth of it. So Patrick and Serena to me read as like not so much personality disorders, but just having really, really severe trauma responses. Um, Patrick obviously has the, the mental and emotional, capacity of a child yeah he's essentially a kid and even though he's older than everybody else
2: please don't leave this here Karen please it's, it's only for a few weeks Patrick
0: you know why they brought us here don't you they're going to experiment on us stop it Jack <laughs> they want to find out what makes our genetically engineered brains tick they're going to cut our heads open and
4: see what comes out
2: <laughs> he's just trying to scare you don't listen to him now, I told you why I brought you here, remember? Mm-hmm. To meet that doctor, Dr.
1: Bouchier. There's a lot of different reasons why that might have happened. But in, in general, you want to say, okay, if someone's development is arrested at a certain stage, that means something happened to them at that stage, at the original stage, that they haven't been able to overcome yet. And so they're stuck there. So I see Patrick as, you know, either for neurodevelopmental reasons or trauma or like there's I have no idea why it happened but to me he's very stuck
3: yeah we can theorize about that in universe a little bit Uh, and I I acknowledge what you're saying in that the the show is conflating this genetic engineering with psychological trauma but if we use it as a as an allegory you know just like Bashir they, they were all as far as we know engineered as children so it's possible that Whichever procedure happened to Patrick when he was a child, when he was six or seven or whatever, um, caused that arresting, uh, caused him to be arrested at that point in terms of his social development, even though everything else kept maturing.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good, that's a really good hypothesis. Like, okay, he's still the age he was when this happened to him. He hasn't been able to get past it because the needs of that stage haven't been met yet. You know, like we like, and that's really sad. And for Serena, when I look at her, I I see a very, very severe trauma response that looks a lot like freeze to me. Like, and like, you know, they do call it catatonia. And that's something very, that really does happen if someone has experienced really, really severe um, abuse and trauma.
2: Please, Serena. You don't want the deaths of so many people on your hands. Jack isn't it are you worried what he'll think I've seen the way you look at him when you think no one's watching I know how much you care but if you don't help me stop them you know what's gonna happen you're gonna be arrested and charged with treason and you're never gonna see any of them again you're never gonna see Jack again
1: You know, we have fight, fight or freeze as far as like our our typical like animalistic defense mechanisms for for when we perceive threat. And so we try to fight a threat or we try to run away from a threat. But if we can't do either, we have this like much older mechanism in us that is freeze, where essentially everything shuts down. And the idea is that if you do die, you know, if you're an antelope in the jaws of a lion, and you, and you can't escape and you can't fight, you freeze because the animal, the animal's not going to feel as much pain in that scenario. They're not going to feel how painful being eaten alive is going to feel, you know? Um, and if for some reason they survive that, ideally they're able to pop out of freeze and like fight or flight or run away, you know? Mm -hmm. But, um, if you experience a lot of trauma that you cannot escape from, you freeze, you collapse, you go into this catatonic state, and it's and depending on the severity of it, it's really really difficult to get out of it. Um, and so that's what I see in Serena's presentation, and I'll talk a little bit more about that like in our next episode because it does feature Serena so much. Yeah. But t- to me, like that's a really really heartbreaking like situation to be in and um you know i uh for school i had to read a book um called welcome to my country which is written by lauren slater and it's her and it's stories that she tells from a time when she worked in a mental hospital in massachusetts and each patient that she kind of writes about are examples of like these kinds of of um, trauma responses and mental illnesses and abuse. And there's this one uh, patient called Oscar, who really is just a, pro- a a heartbreaking example of this kind of catatonic trauma response. And so, if anyone wants to know more about it, I just I want to recommend that book. It's a hard read, but it's really beautiful.
3: Yeah, I, I appreciated there. <clears throat> attempt in, such, you know, in 40 minutes, however long this episode is, to, at, to to acknowledge the fact that, you know, neurodivergency and personality disorders, and I know I'm not fully separating them as much as I should in my mind, but I'm doing my best, um, to give them some sort of fair representation in terms of what the spectrum is. Um, and someone like Serena, in in this story at least, is sort of one... Well, it's the most extreme version, you you know, you you can probably imagine encountering in in real life of someone who literally cannot speak because they are so traumatized, either in the case of um, the show because of genetic uh, issues with with the way she was genetically engineered, or in real life more likely because of severe emotional trauma. So I appreciate that they wanted to include her amidst the more sort of um, borderline humorous (laughs) depictions with Lauren and and, and Jack
0: and, and, and Patrick. The chief doesn't like any of us, do you chief? Julian. He's just jealous you're spending so much time with us. His wife's
2: away, he misses his friend.
0: I do not.
2: It's all right, Julian. Go play with your friend, we'll be fine. You want me to play with you, do you, chief?
3: The last little point I'd, I'd love to touch on just briefly with this episode is the concept of psychohistory. Um, which, so when you know the quartet make this, make all these predictions and they say... The way our statistical analysis works,
2: the further into the future you go, the more accurate the projection. It's based on a kind of non-linear
3: dynamics whereby small fluctuations tend to factor out over time.
1: That's a very presumptuous statement.
3: Well, it's not original to this story. It comes from mm. uh, the Foundation uh, series, which I don't know if you've read, um, but it uh, it's Isaac Asimov's kind of seminal science fiction work, and it's, it, it, it's, he, he calls it psychohistory, um, which is this idea that you can... It's a little different in that s- story, but it's generally, generally the same concept. Um, okay. Which that's, that's cool, little sci-fi nugget. But when I looked it up to confirm what I thought I remembered, it turns out that psychohistory now is actually a real thing. Um, but it goes in the other direction, where it's taking an account of, of actual history, not future history, but past history.
1: The quote-unquote real psychohistory is looking back on things that have happened and doing like a psychological interpretation of them. Sounds a lot like therapy. It's kind of like, <laughs> what happened? Let's process it. Let's try to figure out why that happened so you don't do it again, you know? Um, Whereas like the future, like the the predictive model of it is so much more, it's it's much more difficult, I think, you know? And their conviction was so powerful. Is there some part
2: of the analysis you you didn't understand? Because if there is, I'd be happy to explain.
4: I understood it perfectly, believe it or not. That's not what I meant. All I'm saying is, You have to look at the bigger picture. Well, I'm trying. Maybe I'm too uncomplicated to see it properly. I didn't say that. You don't have to. Look, the way you're acting, you think nobody with half a brain could possibly disagree with you? Frankly, I don't see how they can. Well, I can see two possible explanations for it. Either I'm even more feeble-minded than you ever realised, or you're not as smart as you think you are
1: and yet they also didn't have the full picture. And I I thought that was, I I thought that aspect of the show and like the struggle between these brilliant minds being able to negotiate that brilliance with the world they lived in, I thought that was actually like very sophisticated and like handled really, really well in the show. Like they, they, they pointed out the flaws in both sides, I think. And I appreciated that.
3: The story of the mutants closes with Season 7's Chrysalis from 1998. It was also written by Renea Echeveria and directed by Jonathan West. So the Quartet has returned to DS9 in their own way, impersonating Starfleet officers. As usual, their hearts are in the right place. See, Julian has been planning to Flowers for Algernon Serena, the catalectic one, and so her friends brought her to him ahead of schedule. They even help enhance the equipment Bashir needs to perform the procedure. After a few false starts, Serena emerges from her shell, finally able to communicate with the world around her. Serena, what are you looking at? Everything. Before long, she's speaking and singing, and charming. Bashir finds himself falling for the emerging young woman.
2: So what's a genetically enhanced girl supposed to do when she wakes up from a long sleep? Point to one of those little specks of light out there. Pack a bag and
4: go make a life for herself.
2: Why does she have to go anywhere at all?
3: On the other hand, Jack, Lauren, and Patrick have to contend with the fact that Serena won't be returning to the Institute with them. Despite them having been like a family, Serena is apparently suited to a normal life without them. That may be, but Julian is moving at mutant speed with the romantic overtures, even inviting her to join him and Ryza. Things seem to be going extremely well, but after a few days, Serena seems to slip back into her
0: cataleptic state.
4: She can still talk, it's just that she's afraid to.
0: And I understand, what is she afraid of? We don't know. But we think it has something to do with you. I'm gonna talk to her.
2: I want us to be together. Even understand what
4: love is. I don't understand anything. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to feel? Tell me. I want to make you happy. I owe you everything.
2: You, you don't owe me. You don't owe me anything.
3: Sobered by the realization, Bashir arranges for her to start a new life off the station. Um, We can't <laughs> gloss over the sort of ethical um, hole <laughs> here, so we've yeah. spoken a couple of times about Bashir um, in his uh, earlier season portrayals and how sort of um, cringy he can be could, could be at that time but this is season seven he's matured quite a lot um, and I, I want to get into it because I think it's complicated in this case um, but he does if he doesn't cross a, an ethical line he at least gets very close to it Um I don't know your reaction as a therapist <laughs> to uh, him dating his patient I mean, here.
1: Yeah, no, not great. Not great. Um, it's a definite gray area. You know, um, you know, people talk about red flags all the time. I kind of think of it as like green, yellow, red flags. And he's definitely in yellow territory where it's like, you're not, you're almost not doing what you're supposed to not be doing. That's not a <laughs> word. It's <That's> not a <laughs> syntaxical <laughs> thing. It's problematic, even if it's not completely unethical, like what he's doing. As far as my own training as a therapist is going, we have to acknowledge the power differential in the room. You know, like even as we strive for like an egalitarian relationship with our client, um, with our clients, almost inherently by the structure of it, like having we have slight power there, you know, even if we are striving to say you actually know more about your life than I do, I'm here to support you, you have the answers, I'm here to help you find them, versus like, Oh, here, you have to come to me, and I will tell you what to do. Like, we're, we're very intentionally trying not to do the latter. I think doctors are in a very similar position. There's an inherent power differential there. And the easiest thing is just to not do that, you know, with therapists, you know, if in general, you should never date your clients like it's a huge problem. No, seriously, huge problem. You should never do that.
3: Wait, sorry. When you say it's a huge problem, do you mean it's like a thing that happens too often or it's just. a yeah. Oh, boy. OK.
1: If you really drill down to it, taboos exist for a reason because people want to do the thing and they have to have a really good reason not to. Uh and Uh there is a lot of intimacy that can be developed in like a client therapist relationship like who else do you have those kind of conversations with and on the one hand it can be very therapeutic to develop a kind of relationship like that with someone that isn't sexual that isn't romantic like look at Bashir and Julian like how are they straddling that line and even they have the tension there of like oh I'm not gay you know (laughs) yeah but The ethical thing to do as a therapist in that situation is like, you never cross that line. Like that is a very firm boundary that you do not get involved with your clients at all. If you ever want to do it, the like, at least California recommendation is you can, you have to stop seeing them as your client and you have to have no contact for two years. And if Uh after that you want a date, you're technically not going to lose your license, but it's, it's still a little cringy, mm-hmm. you know? So that's where I'm coming from, you know, as yeah. far as me looking at the situation and, and I wish there was just a little bit more of that, like framework and handling or, that was presented in the show. It feels absent to me. And like in the absence of such a strong, like theoretical, ethical framework, um, I get why that happens, you know. Even though, he, and even though he's like, oh, we're genetically
2: engineered. We do everything fast. <sighs> Julian, she's your patient, not anymore. I've asked Dr. Garani to take over her okay? care.
1: Close but no cigar. Like there's <laughs> still that debt that she feels to him. Right. There's still that power differential, and I, I will give the show credit that they are very they do really say, oh, even though you feel this debt to him and he and he's interested in you, that doesn't mean you have to do anything. And I do appreciate the show and the writers being very, very clear on that point. Because I think a lot of women find themselves in that position and they don't get such a clear message of like, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do anything. And the show is very clear on that. And I appreciate that. But the leading up to that made me uncomfortable.
3: Yeah, it's, it's great. I agree with you. And they do... You know, again, it, it, it it's Bashir is not her therapist; he's her medical doctor, because that's where they're treating this. I'm not treating this as a psychological but still issue. A
1: power differential. Oh, I
3: know. But so one could say, okay, well, since he no longer is her doctor, he recuses himself of that role. He doesn't wait two years, certainly. Um, the 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 other thing at play here, which I think makes it more complicated for me, is that is Bashir's side of this stuff. It's not simply a question of intimacy. Uh, afforded to the two of them or sort of created by their relationship as doctor and patient. It's intimacy created by their bond as both being uh, genetically engineered and having mm-hmm. found themselves on the green light side of social acceptance and being essentially the yeah. only people in that position in the universe potentially, right? Miles, I don't think you understand what this
2: means to me. All these years I've had to hide the fact that my DNA had been resequenced. I listened to people talk about the genetically engineered, saying they were all misfits. I used to fantasize about meeting someone who was like me, who could live a normal life. But it never happened
3: until Serena. Don't you see? She's the woman I've been waiting for all my life. She's no longer the institutionalized type of neurodivergent. She's now the socially acceptable one. And the two of them get to go and be geniuses together in their socially acceptable context. And I think that promise, because Bashir doesn't get to have that with anybody else, right? Yeah. Um, That exclusivity in that relationship is something I want to extend a little bit of um, empathy towards Bashir's bad behavior here, questionable behavior, because of that um he's in a position that is pretty makes him pretty vulnerable to those feelings and again he realizes that he's fucked up (laughs) like he he's doing these things sort of unconsciously and a little bit carelessly in terms of the way he's presenting himself to Serena but then when he hears her say
0: I want
2: to
1: make you happy I owe you everything you
2: you don't know me you
1: don't owe me anything I'm so glad that you can start to see unconscious dynamics. That makes me so happy. (laughs) Um, No, I, that's, that softens me a lot as you say that. So thank you. And and like, yeah, it's, it's gray in both the good and bad sides of it, you know? And, and I'm really, I'm really glad that they stopped it before it got worse, you know? But I, I, again, it's a complicated, it's a complicated situation. And we find ourselves in these complicated situations all the time. Bashir was really lonely. Like the episode kind of starts with that. He mm-hmm. can't hang out with O'Brien, you know, Kira, you know, Kira and Odo are doing their own thing. Like Bashir doesn't have anybody. And then he has this potential for this really powerful connection that he can't have with anybody else. And of course, like, of course we want to, we want to connect with people. We, yeah. we, it's so important to see yourself and other people. And I see the draw. I, I can really understand the draw if, if that was really the first time that Bashir saw himself in that way in somebody else. And of course he would want to be close to that.
3: Well, um, and he had just lost, they had just lost Jadzia, right? She had just died um, yeah. a, few, a few episodes before this. And yeah, Esri's here, but he doesn't really know her yet. And uh, spoiler, they do Ezri's get...
1: awkward. She's awkward. That was my first time seeing Ed- Esri in a while re-watching this episode. And I was like
0: what, what are early you doing, early kid? season seven oh
3: Esri yeah, it's, it's a lot
0: I know you're disappointed Julian but you did everything that you could
2: well it wasn't enough
0: I'm sorry obviously you want to punish yourself do you want help because I'm really good at punishing myself let's see if I were you I'd be kicking myself for making promises I couldn't keep for getting people's hopes up for being arrogant enough to think that i could help serena even though dozens of other doctors have failed should i keep going
3: they do end up together spoiler um bashir and 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 dax eventually at the very end of the series but um you know jedzir was someone who maybe because of her own unique experience as a as a trill and a genius in her own right maybe presented that um possibility for Bashir of someone he you know he pursued her pursued her romantically a lot of the series but of course she married Worf um and then died so that's I think contributing to his sort of sense of loneliness as well yeah the um the most sort of standout scene for me in this episode is when so it's after the procedure Serena is quote-unquote normal now and able to talk and do her thing and Bashir has to go do something else i think surgery and she goes back to spend some time with Jack and Lauren and Patrick and when Bashir goes to find her again she appears to have reverted to her like yeah. quasi uh, catatonic state but really she's just being quiet because it makes the other one the other people around her feel more comfortable <laughs> because that's what they're used to and i found that fascinating
1: to me, that's a really good example of what's called systems theory, which is one way that therapists can like understand like dynamics that go on in a family. Hmm. Um, or, you know, like in any in any relationship, essentially. Um, there's this idea of systems find their homeostasis. They find a consistent, easeful way of functioning in however that looks. you know, and for the quartet, their homeostasis included Serena being mute. Like, they all talked, they did their thing, and Serena was mute. And when she came back into that system, they couldn't accommodate her change. And, you know, like, any time that homeostasis is threatened, it either goes back to the way it was, or it changes. Those are the two options. And obviously, this in this case, it went back to the way it was, because the system was not able to change to accommodate her new abilities in the world you know and that, that's a very classic example of just like how these kind of like family system dynamics work and was really sad you know yeah. and also and it also tracks to like what you mentioned earlier about when she got so overwhelmed with like julian's advances she also shut down
6: mm-hmm. like
1: that that is also very typical of someone who has a habitual freeze response when you get overwhelmed you fall back into these really ingrained patterns and for her it was freeze like she doesn't when our systems get so overwhelmed like that's what happens
3: I keep messing up my terminology here where I refer to something as neurodivergence when it's really mental illness or maybe just atypical behavior, and it's it's all a little messy in my head, um, and I acknowledge that yeah. ag- again. But I also, I think that's one of the themes about these three episodes um, that I relate to very strongly and I think is really well done. And one of the reasons I wanted to... to, to Talk about this with you so much is that so you look at someone like Bashir, who, as we said in his in the first episode, where it's revealed that he's been genetically engineered, he is in a lot of ways the least atypical in terms of his social presentation of the characters looked at, and yet he is the divergent one in a literal genetic sense, right? Yeah. Um, and then when he meets the other mutants, he finds himself. Kind of straddling, straddling, a little. he finds himself straddling the line between these two worlds. Where, on the one hand, amongst the mutants, he's almost too normal. Where his, you know, when, when they decide, Oh, we have to end the war, um, because of blah 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 blah, our statistics, he's like, Yeah, I agree with you, but I'm not going to commit treason. Like, he has that sort yeah. of social framework to say, No, 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 I'm not going to go that far. But then on the other hand, when he's dealing with his normies, <laughs> with, with O'Brien and so forth, right, He, he's like frustrated. It's like, why do I have to stand back here? Why do I have to handicap myself and the things that I can do just because it makes you feel uncomfortable? And yeah. in that respect, whether it's about mental illness or neurodivergency or just personality uh, spectrums, I, I find that portrayal really powerful and, and interesting. And I like that it's not an easy thing for the, for them, these characters to grapple with while acknowledging what you said about how the portrayal of the mutant characters is problematic in that it reaches for a lot of tropes with respect to mental illness presentation. I think the intention here is to show that where that line is between mental illness, uh, autism spectrum personality just diversity uh is not a line that is drawn by the characteristics of the individual person it's a social issue it's a cultural issue where we say this is no longer acceptable and if you find yourself on this side of this line it's your fault but it's really us making that rule
1: yeah no no really really well said you know it it's you know the DSM um, has gotten rid of Aspergers. Like Aspergers is no longer a um, diagnosis or mm-hmm. label that anybody has. It's now autism spectrum disorder, and I think that spectrum is really important. It's a really important concept, and also applies not just to autism, but to but to all of this. You know, um, you know to pull it back to the quote unquote real world on which Star Trek is based because it's based on humanity, whether we like it or not. (laughs) Um, You know, like society has created these boundaries about what we consider normal and what we consider abnormal and what we consider optimal and what we consider dysfunctional. You know, like these are labels that we've created and I I do think that's a little bit of a disservice rather than saying, Oh, this is a good presentation. Like this is how you should act. And here's how you shouldn't act within reason. I'm not condoning sociopathic murderous tendencies, Um, you know, but why is being autistic considered outside of what this optimal, quote-unquote optimal range of human presentation is Uh why why isn't just what it means to be human why doesn't that be why isn't that included as part of this is just one of the ways that we can be versus like pathologizing it you know versus saying like oh this is divergent you know versus like this is just one of what it is like all of this is like this diversity isn't a problem it's a feature all of this is supposed to be here Mm -hmm. and that's not really the way we consider like these these neurotypical presentations um or even mental illness like going back to richard in the very first episode like if he lived in a capitalistic society yeah. He would have a problem. Why can't we live in a world in which all these different ways of being in the world are somehow welcomed and supported? So, so I do think it is like it is this sort of like social boundaries, like with countries, like we d- we say a line and it's like, you're on this side of it or that side of it, but we create the line, yeah. you know, the line doesn't have to be there. When we look at people that have mental illness, I think there's this tendency to like other them, you know, it's like, Oh, you, you are somehow outside of the optimal human experience. And I am separate from that. You are different from me. We do not share anything like there's like this tendency to distance ourselves from people who have really, really severe mental illnesses and and sometimes social dysfunction. And I don't think we're that different in all honesty, you know, um, you know, you know, Elliot. You and I are musicians, and I I love that that back what that background and knowledge offers me, especially as I'm like going into the like, like psychology realm. But something that I think about a lot is um, how the overtone series works, because <laughs> I'm a nerd. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, yeah, but you um, wake up in the middle of the night just that,
3: thinking about fun- fundamental C, and I, I hear you. I do.
1: I do. It's very hot. The the basics of it is is sound is made up of many different frequency bands. You know, when we hear a certain pitch, there's that fundamental frequency, which is like the bottom, which is the lowest um, frequency. And we typically consider that to be the note. Um, But above that fundamental frequency are all these overtones that are also ringing at the same time. And and so it, rather than it just being like one color or one flavor, it's actually, a, it's a mixture. It's a lot of different things that all sound at the same time, which we hear is one thing. Mm-hmm. So, and the difference between the way a piano sounds, the way a violin sounds, the way the human voice sounds, the way, like the differences between all these instruments when they play the same note is the difference of volume in their overtones, you know? Um, you can think of it like spices, you know? Like, okay, you have this basic white sauce and you can add nutmeg to it, you can add blue cheese to it, you can add cayenne, you can add cumin, you can add coriander, you know, like, you, you add these different flavors to this basic structure and depending on the amount of spice you use, the, um, you know, which spices are predominant and which are missing, you know, which you have more or less of, really defines the flavor that you get. It defines this, and same with overtones, like the, uh, the volume and intensity of these different overtones registers as the different sounds to us. That's the difference between a piano and a violin and a guitar all playing the same note, is how those, how those upper frequencies um, fluctuate in volume. And I, th- I think that maps really well onto the human experience. We're all built of the same stuff. We all have the same basic frequencies going on, and they're just in different proportions. That's what makes individuals. We all have our individual frequency of, I have a lot of this and not a lot of this, and you have different amounts of that, but you have the same stuff. It's in different degrees and intensities. And, and so when we look at somebody who has a paranoid personality disorder or who has narcissistic tendencies or who has histrionic, you know, behaviors, you know, like we want to other them. We want to say, oh no, I'm not like that. We are like that. We all have little, you know, little bits, some more than others. Of those kind of frequencies and tendencies in us, when it gets to a really dysfunctional level, it's just that those frequencies have been ramped up. They're really loud, but that doesn't mean we don't have them. yeah. and I, I just think that's a really important thing to keep in mind.
3: I love using a food metaphor to describe a an auditory phenomenon as a metaphor to describe psychological diversity i just i absolutely love that it's one of the things that connects us as you and i as friends um and uh secondly it well the the food one especially makes me think that if (laughs) if we were all within a narrow spectrum of spicing let's say or flavoring what a bland world right that's what we'll be left with and despite the fact that certain flavor combinations or certain auditory phenomena might be more, might be more challenging to certain palates or certain ears, or depending on what your experience is, has been with those sounds or flavors, mm-hmm. um, it might be more challenging to you. But that isn't, that isn't to say that it's wrong or that it's impossible or undigestible, right? It just means it takes okay. a little bit more work for you potentially living where you are when you are to be able to digest that in a way that is, it's it's going to work. Um, I love that. Yeah. Getting back to that scene in Chrysalis where Serena is, uh, has muted herself it, this time intentionally uh, mm-hmm. in order to get I, along. I, I, oh, I, good. Yep.
1: I almost wouldn't say intentionally because um, that implies a little bit of conscious choice. Mm. And I, I do just think that that is just what her system does as a defense mechanism maybe it so sorry like what you're saying is correct i just take word i just take um issue with the word intentional about that
3: no that that point is well taken um but she is at this point not being muted by her genetic conditioning she is Mm -hmm. muting herself uh to adapt to the social situation in that in that scene what i the other thing that sort of stuck out to me is you know it's not as though unlike o'brien and cisco when they're dealing with Bashir's like wild, uh, the the the, the psychohistory stuff, the like wild projecting. And it's like, I don't understand it, this math that you're doing. Serena completely understands what Jack and Lauren and Patrick are talking about. The universe is too
0: heavy for its own good. You need to lighten the load. Yes, 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 exactly. We have to find some way to decrease the mass. Of the entire universe? That's the whole point. Is that possible? That's what we're trying to figure out, Serena. What if we found a way to
2: manipulate subspace?
0: Mm. mm, 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 mm. Change the cosmological constant? Mm. Yes, yes. Got to yes. do the trick.
2: You can't change the cosmological constant.
0: You know something, Serena. We are trying to save existence as we know it, and all you can do is criticize. I'm sorry. Thank you. Now, where were we? She she totally gets what they're talking about. It's just that
3: now on this side of the line, that she finds herself on, she's able to essentially see the forest for the trees and say, "Yeah, you know, I get it, but why is that's not important? Like there are other things to focus our intelligence on, and that to me is one of the really telling things about this um, this line between what we're seeing as neurodivergency and quote unquote nor- neurotypical behavior is." here is a socially acceptable range of things to care about to put your Mm -hmm. attention into and your genius into whatever level it's at your abilities focused on these things you know what is the prototypical sort of capitalist way of being like you get a job you have a family you have a house you do the blah 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 and if you're really smart you have a big house and a big car and a big family or whatever and if you're dumb you you know those are the assumptions that are often made within that context. And if you are applying that ability of yours anywhere outside of the acceptable uh, range of, of topics or foci, then you're weird, right? Then you're atypical, mm-hmm. then you're divergent. And I, I just, I found that a really expressive way of, of telling that little story in that scene. And the other thing I just want to point out that I think DS9 in these stories it gets really right um, despite the reductive nature of some of the mental illness caricatures um, that we're seeing yeah. in these characters is that it's not, it's not making the mistake that often happens in fiction and saying that uh, the intelligence of these characters and these, uh, and these abilities and and their neurodivergency is a superpower. Like it's not like, you know jack has to be borderline sociopathic in order to have the intelligence to be able to make these predictions and these recommendations it's his sociopathy yeah. such as it is is actually a hindrance to him being able to be his full self and they're separate right
4: yeah
3: it's not like he's got this kryptonite superman thing it's not that which is realistic he, right
1: it's very realistic yeah and and like that's that's the thing I potentially took issue with when I was seeing these things, this neurodivergency and these mental illnesses conflated. Like, oh, these are separate things. They're happening at the same time in these characters. But, like, yeah, Jack's genius is not dependent on him acting that way. Right. You know? Yeah. And if anything, it's getting in his way of being able to share his genius with other people. And that's, that's the separation, which I'm glad that we're, like, highlighting. You know, I, I I didn't see that separation very clearly in the episode. I don't know if it was there at the time. But I'm, I'm glad that we can kind of pull these apart now. I think that's a really good point you bring up about, like, the acceptable focus of our talents and our gifts. You know, um, I, I think this is another moment of when Star Trek is not quite as futuristic and utopian as they believe they are. Because, <laughs> like, that's that's still... This is still a very capitalistic paradigm, you know, to be like, oh, you have to do something productive right. and practical, you know, even though you, we live in a society without money, there's still certain things that you should and shouldn't focus on. One of the things that really separates Serena, from, for me, from the other members of the quartet, once she is able to speak and kind of gets out of her catatonic state, um, is almost her ability to empathize with other people, to like think outside of her immediate experience and herself. And because the the quartet, when they wanted to save the Federation from this giant war and we're willing to do treason and we're were willing to commit treason to do it, they couldn't put themselves in anybody else's shoes, you know. And to me, that is a little, that is a negative stereotype about autism is this kind of lack of ability to kind of see the other person and empathize with the other person you were talking about like the handicap that Bashir has like when he's playing darts with O'Brien, which on the one hand is cute. <laughs> and on the other hand, unfortunately reminds me of like Atlas shrugged and, and Rand's argument. Mm. Um, and, and, and full disclosure, I did not finish Atlas shrugged. <laughs> I tried reading it and got about halfway through and just wow. got mad at her and stopped.
3: That's actually impressive yeah, no. that you got that far. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. I was like, let me understand what this cultural like touch mark is. And I, I just I was like, never mind, I'm just gonna read the spark notes. Um but I think part of the and I don't I don't really agree with her. Also there. Also there. I'm not a huge fan of this. But I think her argument was essentially like you were hindering the progress of society by not letting people excel and by trying to make everyone the same and kind of average out like what people can and can't do. And you're not letting these like people who are so much further exceptional, better than others. Exceptional. Yeah. By not letting people be exceptional, you're actually smothering human progress. I think is essentially her argument. I kind of get it. I kind of think her counter argument is reductionist and a little bit of a straw man argument, but I also see that I see like little hints of that here in in, in this some um, trio of episodes that we're looking at and how we treat neurodivergence. You know, like here are these exceptional people that are too exceptional. We actually have to kind of hold them back to protect everybody else, mm-hmm. and. I get the I get the argument and I'm uncomfortable with it. Like I don't I don't think it's fully fleshed out, you know, and n- neither in the real, real world nor in the Star Trek franchise, but I think it's again, it's something that we need to have more of a conversation about, especially by saying like okay, hey, Bashir is brilliant, has been socialized, is not going to try to take over the world. And yet we still say you cannot fully use your gifts and what do we lose by that
4: but do i have to stand so far back oh, come I, I make one lucky shot and you're ready to come down to my level no, i like to win okay. just like the next man get back there come on
3: what you're referring to is what i would call ayn rand's one decent argument <laughs> um and if if people haven't <laughs> for good reason read ayn rand and don't want to read atlas Shrugged, um i think this particular argument is both better and more concisely thankfully uh, expressed in The Fountainhead one of her other novels okay. um which is about an architect who runs into this it's it's more about specifically this issue of um being an exceptional person who's unwilling to compromise their exceptionalism for the sake of social pressure and again her arguments are all over the place and this is not the episode to deal with Ayn Rand necessarily But I agree with you that it's something that, you know, we've been very clear in this uh, podcast about our socioeconomic perspective as being pretty left-leaning and egalitarian in terms of social progress and all of that. Um, But it is one thing that the left doesn't always contend with as much as it should. And it's demonstrated here in, in the fact that it isn't fully fleshed out in these Star Trek episodes as good as they are. Is that how do you contend with that exceptionalism? How do what where is the person who makes other people feel uncomfortable by their being so brilliant, or gifted, or whatever? Um, what it, it is inevitably going to make people uncomfortable because you know jealousy is just a facet of the human condition. One and sometimes (laughs) as much as we might construct systems which are as fair as they can be there's an inherent uh misdistribution of resources that's just a part of the universe right some people simply are stronger which and some people simply are smarter in certain ways in certain categorizable ways um and some people have handicap some people have extra it. gifts it's just a sort of a part of the human fabric and contending with that in a way that isn't harmful to either the group or the individual is is a challenge into spoilers uh, for Strange New Worlds, I know that the topic of the genetic um, genetically engineered super people, um, it, 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 it's its getting dealt with to a certain extent in, in even the most um, recent Trek that's being produced, which is yeah. telling of the fact that this is a, a subject that keeps getting woven through and, and dealt with in different years of the franchise. I mean, it goes all the way back to Space Seed. In the original series of course and wrath of khan and there's an enterprise arc about it it and there's all these ds9 episodes it keeps popping up um because we haven't figured it out yet
1: no i mean i i think even in like as we speak it like Aren't people starting to actually genetically modify their children? Like it's starting to happen, and yeah. so this is like a real issue that we're trying to figure out right now. And of course, it's being reflected in the art we make. Like that's the freaking tagline of our podcast. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, it's a brave new world, and it's you know it, it it's like with stuff with AI as well. Th- th- subjects that yeah. we we look at in, in Star Trek, and we say you know from the '90s or the '60s or whatever, and. Look at it and say, "Oh, that's kind of quaint." <laughs> how you thought this was going to go, and how actually it's it's far worse
1: <laughs>
3: potentially. It's far worse. Far worse potentially than than you could have imagined. Yeah.
1: You know, we've touched on a lot of different topics. I like, guess we've explored this episode, um, as we've done this episode, and so I do think, like, hey, let's go back and and really look at like you know the eugenics wars and like the philosophical arguments for you know genetic modification for and against and. You know, I'm I'm sure there were at least two or three other topics that we like hinted at today. And uh, and we'll just we'll go back and touch on them because they're all worth diving into, you know.
3: Yeah, there's lots of stuff to look at in Star Trek. Uh, speaking of yeah. which, for our next episode, uh, you know, we talk a little bit about mental illness and we're going to stick with it and talk about Star yeah. Trek Psychos next week so I'm
1: so excited to get my diagnostic hat on here we go here we go
3: (laughs) I'm hoping I didn't misdiagnose as a lay person I'm pretty sure all of the people we're talking about are to one degree or another uh, legitimate psychopaths so um, we will we will get into that next time for the time being, I want to thank you, as always, for your unbelievable insight in this wonderful conversation.
1: Oh, thank you, Elliot. This is a delight to nerd out with you about this. I learn a lot, um, and I'm, I'm so happy to be able to share this with you and, and our listeners. Thank you to everybody who listens. Thank you to our patrons. Please like, subscribe, share with your friends. You know, um, we know this is a very niche topic and conversation, but for those who are into this, I, they're really into it, and so we wanna—we just wanna spread the love far and wide.
3: Well said. Well, with that, Elizabeth, I will look forward to talking about uh, psychopaths with you next time.
1: <laughs> Me too. You psychopath. See you later. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> they want to save the universe and when they wanted to save the Federation I hear it my neighbors being extremely noisy